0: I'm getting to the point where I'm trying to get more comfort, more satisfaction from helping other people rather than like trying to climb some ladder of success. But I'm worried, James, because there is sort of that v- Elan Vital, as they call it, you know, that life energy, that vitality that you have when you're questing after something, bestseller, you know, the, um, you know, to, to win an uh, Oscar, a Nobel prize. Like if I don't have that anymore, I think I'm healthier. I think it's better, you know, for society where the person doesn't care so much about him or herself, but more about their family, their community, their society.
1: Happy holidays and welcome to a special collab edition of Into the Impossible, featuring a revealing conversation between James Altucher and your host, Brian Keating. Their wide-ranging dialogue covers the paradoxes of the recent University of California grad student strike, Talmudic lessons in tithing, and how to enjoy accolades, and the joy and peril of ambition. You'll get a glimpse into Professor Keating's seldom-told personal story. All we want for Christmas and Hanukkah is for you, dear listener, to leave us a review and the gift of an asterism of stars to boost our ratings even more as we move into the new year. So for your holiday cheer, sit back and enjoy James Altucher in conversation with the Into the Impossible host, Ryan Keating. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the
2: pod bay doors, please, Hal. Huh? That's because they think I'm what? That's because your
0: students think you're part Republican part republican yeah i think i am part republican I'm part republican i'm part independent part uh democrat probably students don't like anything other than progressive you know what's so funny is that uh we just are in the middle of a strike the graduate students you remember being a graduate student wasn't really like a uh lucrative career and uh and it's true still today as when you were studying you know category theory way back in the day uh but this uh this time the U- united auto workers have formed a union for graduate students at the university of california and they've been on strike for a month and they're not getting paid and they're not teaching classes and they're not taking classes but um you know how uh, recently the new york times employees went on strike did you hear that yeah yeah, yeah. So Elon Musk, you know, tweeted out woke versus woke. You know, the <laughs> you know that they're the oh. woke writers of the New York Times are are striking against the woke employer, the New York Times, and it's very similar with you know graduate students are striking against professors who used to be graduate students, all of whom are in the same persuasion politically. You know, ninety nine percent. That's it's like you know Twitter uh, politics, and so we have this uh, you know kind of. A uh, battle you know kramer versus kramer woke versus woke where they the students are claiming that you know the professors are evil capitalist pigs and exploiting labor and uh the the graduate students which is true i mean the graduate students living in in la jolla california is not very cheap uh nor is it to live uh, in berkeley or westwood or brentwood california but first off well, living in la jolla is great <laughs> even if you could afford yeah, to live there it all. is great like the most beautiful town in the United States. yeah it, it might be Santa Barbara very similar as well you know any yeah. any place where the the tagline is that it's a place for the newlywed and the nearly dead I mean you know you're going into a place that's going to bankrupt you if if that's where you're gonna live but of course the cities grow up around the universities right it's a great place to have uh to have a family to have culture to have education, obviously, to have, I mean, we built a a train a track that goes from campus now to to downtown San Diego. It's billions of dollars. I was actually featured as a picture on the side of the train recently. but but the point about the strike is, um, you know, the graduate students in physics are very different from a graduate student in anthropology or something like that. And yet they're all on strike. And the thing that, you know concerns me, is that if, if I ask my graduate students, you I think I treat well, if I said, you know, well, why don't you ask your med school friends, you know, how much they get paid to go to graduate school and get professional training, they'll say negative $40,000 a year because they have to pay to go to, to medical school or law school or whatever.
2: That's true. But Brian, I'm, I could argue both sides. I could say on the one hand, the grad students, they're going to get the benefit of a PhD and then they could go off and make whatever. But at the same time, you guys get huge multimillion dollar grants and then grad students really are cheap labor to work on those grants.
0: So well, it's, it's worse than point. that, you, I, I agree. And it's worse than that because we've actually outsourced a lot of the labor to, to China and other parts of the world because uh, we couldn't you know, quote unquote, couldn't find you know the labor pool that we needed for graduate students in the US. But that just made the problem worse because the Asian students that come you know, literally from from. I mean, I have a thousand applicants a year for you know three spots or something. You know, from Asia, and uh, and and they're you know perfect test scores and and great training. Uh, and so it's almost impossible to to keep up with it. But that was a very deliberate policy of the National Science Foundation in the 60s and 70s and 80s. You know, to kind of reduce the cost of capital and labor for uh, for sure. research to be conducted. Well, let me ask you the question. Thing-
2: yeah, by step two, which was your Almost Nobel Prize-winning project. How much in grants did you get to support that project, like the dollar amount?
0: I mean, over probably uh, over its lifetime, twenty million plus. um, okay, and most much, of which was federal. How much into equipment and costs that were
2: you know fixed like that? Um, it was probably about half, maybe 50, 50. Okay, so you had ten million for labor. And how much yeah. did you pay the grads? You didn't pay the grad students anything to
0: work on that. How much you have to pay the school? They got 350 an hour james come on don't be ridiculous no uh, okay so there's a couple of misconceptions one is that the professor controls their salaries which we don't we get a, a grant oh, no, I, I and that. it specifies that. yeah but the listeners the listeners might not understand it right uh, but the other thing is um you know when, when you do when you do this kind of research uh, it's also professional preparation and the graduate students do get uh, a a huge benefit of this of this work and the, the, you know, furthermore, the thing that I don't like about it is that it's, you know, I, my PhD advisor, Peter Timby, he's not only been on my podcast, you know, he came to my wedding, you know, he'll, uh, he'll probably come to my second wedding. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, he, you know, he's been intimately involved. I've stated it you know, I, I love the guy like, like, uh, and and to go on strike, it's not like Starbucks employees. Okay. So Starbucks employees, um, I don't know if this would ever happen, James. Imagine if you uh, are working at Starbucks and then there's a kid. I, okay, right there, that would never happen.
2: <laughs> not because not because I'm I'm a, a elitist and above Starbucks, it's because why they would not hire me. I would be I can't well, I tried to figure out how to use like the basic soda machine and stuff at the comedy club that I own. I couldn't even figure that out. Yeah.
0: So forget Starbucks. Well I think well. I'd say they hire you because they want to figure out how to make it you know more optimal as a third space for chess players, and they want to understand the permutations Enough. of lattes and soy and oat milk, and so they're hiring you for your brains, not not just for your looks. And when they uh, when they do that, um, but you are so desperate to get this position that you write to one of the baristas and you say, "Please write me a letter of recommendation. I am desperate to join, you know, your profession." And immediately, as soon as I get there, I'm going to go on strike because I hate this profession. It's the most, In other words, right now, I'm in the midst of hell, Professor Hell. You know, I always say being a professor is the hardest three-hour-a-week job in the world. But every December, it becomes a six-hour-a-week job because we have to write letters of recommendation. And I don't know if you've ever done a show on, like, how to write a letter of recommendation. What do you want to do? What do you want to provide? How do you want to tailor it? And I've written... I think i looked at my folder i think i've written like 600 letters in the last 22 years of being a scientist you know postdoc professor it's a lot and each one is tailored you know to the and then each individual university that that say one of my uh, undergraduates is applying to so let's say she's applying to 12 institutions each institution carnegie mellon case western uh, you know, Stanford, they all have a different portal. They all, they all have these different permutations of like rate their intellectual capacity and tell me the cohort that you're... It takes like 10 minutes per person, per school, plus the writing of the actual letter and making a PDF. And then sometimes they won't accept PDF, they want Word. And then I use Mac and oh, it's a big... Anyway, you know, world's tiniest violin. Okay. But the bigger point is that they are desperate to get this and I'm happy to provide them these letters of of recommendation, but you wouldn't have that situation where people are desperately trying to become coal miners, right. Or, or, are desperately wanting to work in the triangle shirtwaist factory in the 1906, right. Where they're just like, it's awful. They're, they're basically slave labor conditions, child labor. In other words, this is a very prestigious thing. We also have a surplus of incredible, I mean, I tur- we turn away six or seven incoming graduate school classes. So my bigger point is that people want to work in this field and and yet they're also going on strike and um, and they're striking against the very people who share their ideology. It's a very unusual situation to be in because I, we share I, their ideology politically. I ultimately agree with you. I just
2: think all these situations you're describing, like, I don't think, Grad school is necessary at all, period. And I don't think. Why well, do you say New that? I, now, okay, now and,
0: we're fighting. Now those are fighting words. Okay, let's. And, and I don't let's, think, let's, I don't think the that New York
2: Times is is necessary. Like when was the? I mean, no, I don't get my news from the New York Times, and I'm pretty up on all of the news on both the left side and the right side and the middle, all the many things in the middle. I've seen personally the effect of the useless op-ed page in the New York Times, and so. It, just, and that's the most prestigious newspaper in the world. And, and I, I've i seen so many articles where I knew people who were covered in the articles who documented for me all of the actual lies. And they, the reporters even knew the lies were there. Like the New York Times, any... I'm not saying every established media is useless, but probably it's the case that 90% of established media, particularly the most prestigious ones, are useless. Not prestigious, I'm willing to bet they're more um, interested in reporting the news. But the New York Times is so desperate, they're just... They just want clicks.
0: Have you been red-pilled, James? Have you been red-pilled by Elon? What's going on? No, here? but I, look, the New York Times has covered me on several occasions. and I, and I, I can know. And featured the, an op-ed by your enemy, right? Yeah, an op-ed ed about Steinfeld. a so LinkedIn who, guy. Who,
2: who just, it was like a useless piece of crap. So sorry for the language. Yeah. But, uh, no, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. It's your podcast. I, still get, I got today. I got today. An email about that op-ed. It's two and a half years later. Could people just lose oh my, my number
0: on this already? Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, so, so you don't believe but, that you know all. Pub- uh, so, okay, so the publishing, you know, the, the media is is sort of doomed in one sense, but uh, on another sense, they're they're essential. You know, I still look at it. You still look at it. You just admitted that you look at the New York Times. Um, no, but I, I, on don't, I actually never once look at the new york times I, yes oh, you don't uh-huh. write an op-ed about me i look at the new york times but that's it <laughs> i had an article written recently about me and i'm not doing this to sound elitist but i'm just like i just i don't have the time to like read about myself and 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 i'm I, it's not like i'm so you know like i said I'm not, I'm not saying this from you know elitist point of view there's an old joke like the the a professor gets mad because he's only been f- featured twice this month on the, on the school's website, you know, it's, um, uh, but, but the the point is, is like, I'm actually here. I want to discuss this with you. I've, I've had the best year of my life in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's partially why I want to come on the show, uh, because this whole year, you and I didn't speak to each other until right now in December, we haven't spoken, you know, basically this whole year. We haven't
2: done a podcast since last year.
0: I, th- I think so. We might've done one when my Galileo book, um, audio book yeah. came out, but I, I don't, I don't remember a hundred percent. And that's why it's been the greatest year of my, no, um, <laughs> no, so I missed you, but I want to share some things and I want to discuss, you know, some, some, some other things just on how to handle success, you know, because I, I think, you know, you've been incredibly successful. You've been incredibly influential, not just on me, but on millions of people. Um, and yet, I think I've come to a point and I, I shared this with Ryan holiday, you know, the humble dropping of a name, you know, who I have issues with in, in some ways, as you know, from the, the pandemic and his kind of, you know, overarching concern about it to, you know, to like not asking about, you know, how is James feeling? You know, it's just like, did you get your eighth oh, shot? Look, or I will
2: say Ryan's a great writer and I love his books on stoicism and he's, he's always Me too. really
0: interesting things. And he's a good guy. And I, I call him my stoic rabbi. So I, I won this award. Um, speaking of graduate students, I was uh, the recipient of the 2022 Horace Mann Medal from Brown University where I got my PhD. And I gave a speech in commencement alongside Nancy Pelosi, outgoing speaker of the house. And uh, she was speaking to the undergrads. I spoke to the graduate students. And it was very, you know, it was very moving. My kids came, my wife came, uh, all expenses paid trip. I got this huge medal, like Flavor Flav. And um, and it it was lovely. It was an, an incredible thing. But I wrote to Ryan, like when I won it, um, I wrote to him and I said, I just wanted to let you know you've had a big effect on me because I won it and I was like, let's say I didn't win it, would I be depressed? Like, would I be bummed out to know I hadn't won the Horace Mann Medal from Brown University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world? And I said, no, like, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt me. Like I lost the Nobel prize, you know, like, like it was only, you know, very few places you can go down. And actually in my speech, I said, now thank, you know, I have to express my hostility because now I can no longer write the book, losing the Horace man medal. Uh, but <laughs> be, besides, besides all that, I felt indifferent, James. It was like, it was a very strange thing. Cause as a professor, you're always trying to get accumulate accolades and, and get, you know, raises and teaching promotions and this and that and sabbaticals. I mean, it's funny because graduate students want to become postdocs. Postdocs want to become professors. And then professors want to not teach and get sabbaticals and go back to basically doing research like a graduate student. So it's kind of it's kind of weird that we're in this weird habit trail of, uh, well, well, of this, life as an academic. This is all an
2: important thing. Like you say, if you hadn't gotten it, first off, when you did get it and when you were told that you got it, what was your reaction?
0: It was... I I, want to say, I don't want to say embarrassment, but I felt like, you know, all these prizes and awards, I actually felt proud of myself for being indifferent because I always had this question, James, you know, if I did win the Nobel prize, would my life have been different? You know, if, if we hadn't made the mistakes that we made and the, and the errors and and so forth, not blunders, not stupid, you know, I mean, bicep is still going on, as I just said, you know, I never knew like, what would happen? Like, would I turn it down? Uh, Would I, you know, use it as a platform to rail against it? Or did I still kind of worship it the way I did as a 20 year old, 30 year old scientist? And, um, it's not the same thing, obviously winning an award from a, you know, Ivy league institution is great, but it's not the same as the Nobel prize.
2: No, it, it is really getting acknowledged for anything that you've done by a group of your peers is a very exciting thing. And look, and look, and look, I want to address this directly. Like you said, you felt indifferent, but often when bad things happen to us, like, let's say you hadn't gotten tenure, let's say, you know, for instance, you didn't get the Nobel prize. You wrote an entire book about your frustration of not getting the Nobel prize. It's very important that you're in a field, physics. It's very important that a lot of things are going to happen that disappoint you. And you're going to also have a lot of successes, particularly if you're ambitious and you love physics and you want to succeed, good things will happen, but also bad things will happen. Like you won't win certain prizes and everything. It's very important that you are more happy on the good things then you are sad on the bad things you have let's say a certain mm. amount of well-being in the bank and you withdraw yes. well-being when you're upset about the bad things but you need to replenish and celebrate the good things or the result is burnout like the result is you you run out of emotional fulfillment in what you, you love doing and 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 when that happens you're burnt out like literally you you you've you've taken too much out of too much oxygen out of your passion and there's nothing left. So it's burnt. And mm. I think this is very important that you should be happy getting this Horace Mann award. You should celebrate. You should go out with the wife. You should tell all your friends,
0: you should write a blog post. You should give a great talk and, and, and I, I, and all yeah, of that. I mean, I, you know, I actually turned it back, you know, cause if I've learned nothing, it's to, you know, from you, it's to, you know, shamelessly self promote myself at every opportunity. So <laughs> I did, my talk was called think like Galileo. I gave the commencement speech for the graduate school and, you know, of course I had the product tie-in to my, to my, uh, to my book, audio book. But in reality, I did kind of use it to to present these correlations with these things like accolades, like when Gal- there was no Nobel prize with Galileo, right? Um, that didn't exist until 1901, but Galileo instead did win this prize at the time. It was called, uh, the Academy of the Lynx. The lynx is like a little giant, you know, kitty cat, um, that's a you know, wild cat in Italy, I guess, has big eyes and a big ear. So it has a lot of like sense organs. So scientists would associate like someone who's very smart, like a wise old owl, to them, it was the lynx. Mm. And so they had this academy of the lynx called the Linnean Society, it still exists. And uh, Galileo won it. And he said many, many amazing things when he won it, but uh, but ever since then, ever like he won it in 19, uh, sorry, in uh, 1613 or something after his first major book, The Sidereus Nuncius, The Starry Messenger. And he, which revealed that Jupiter was like a mini solar system with moons going around it, not the earth, it's, and that upheld, upheld the Copernican uh, worldview. Now, once he received this accolade, he then on every single one of his books thereafter, and he wrote like 10 more books, he wrote member of the Academy of the links underneath, you know, his (laughs) underneath his name. And so that accolade meant a tremendous amount to him. Of course it meant a tremendous amount to him. And it you
2: make a point where he used it, not only for, not only was he proud of it and probably celebrated it, but he used it to acquire future career success because you know, it's a, a, uh, an authority, an authority figure or an authority body said, you're a great scientist and people, it's just natural human instinct. People want authority to to get affirmation that they're associating with the right people and the right ideas and, and and so on. So it's, again, extremely important to celebrate these things and not downplay them and to mention them. Not, of course, to the point where, like you were saying, you know, it gets too self-promotional, but you should just be proud of what of what you do. And And these things are important in society and society recognizes them.
0: I guess, you know, the next level, you know, in Judaism that we share and we've talked about many times, you know, there's le- different levels of charity. You know, Jews have as many words for different, you know, kind of societal things as Eskimos allegedly have for snow, right? So like Jews have like 20 different names for love and and like 10 different names for charity and, and kindness and everything. But one of the concepts within the concept of philanthropy is the notion of the different levels of giving charity. So the first level is give nothing, right? Uh, the second level is you give the minimum, you know, which is 10%. Uh, the the and this is all in the Talmud, which is the second holiest book in Judaism. The uh, but there's a limit, there's a maximum. You're not allowed to give more than twenty percent. Have you ever heard that, James? You have to give ten no, percent, which is like a tie, the tenth. You know, but there's a maximum of twenty percent. And why do you think there would be a maximum?
2: Because perhaps it's it's ego. So so your ego doesn't get too
0: big. Like uh, oh, I'm the benefactor of this. If you love this Right, because who's the ultimate benefactor, according to the Talmudic rabbis? Who's the ultimate benefactor in space? God. God, right. So like, oh, you're better than God? Like without James Altucher's, you know, uh, $10,000 check, you know, just 20% of his network, you know, whatever. Oh, this guy, like the whole world would be poor, you know, give me a break. So it's to keep your ego in check. I think that's very interesting because like you might say, well, give all your money away and, you know, just be poor and that's the highest. No, but then, and then even then, you shouldn't just like the highest thing is not just giving a guy a check. You know, as Jesus, a great Jew, said, you know, teach a man to fish and he'll have fish for his whole life. Give a man a fish, he'll uh, eat for one day. Um, so the highest level is actually to give anonymously, like so that right. nobody knows, you know, to put your name in a building. And then the, the ultimate highest level is to give anonymously, give somebody a job, which is kind of weird um, when you think about it. Like, how can you anonymously give someone a job? Because then they're self sufficient, then they don't need you. And then, Uh, And then your ego is not bound up with it because it's anonymous. So you'll never be. um, So I kind of feel like, you know, in some ways that um, when I, when I, when I think about these, you know, kind of levels of, of different accolades uh, that maybe it should be that indifference is I I hear what you're saying. Cause you know, like I actually like that people put their name on a hospital, like here in San Diego, there's a, a hospital named after Irwin Jacobs, the founder of Qualcomm and, uh, and his wife, and they've given billions of dollars away. And, and they always put their name on it. And it inspired me to give a substantial amount of money to the food bank, which, which has their name on it. But I think it's good because then it motivates. But it should be done like, and, and you see it like Jeff Bezos just gave like $100 million to, you know, I don't know, ACLU or some you know left-wing charity or whatever, or his wife did to Planned Parenthood and or the ex-wife, Mackenzie. That's fine, you can do whatever you want. But I mean, the highest thing is to do it without anybody knowing it. Usually I agree with kind of these, like, it's always very interesting how the,
2: the the secondary philosophies of all these things that are in the Jewish religion that you don't normally think about, like, like, you know, this idea of, of giving anonymously, for instance, is the highest form of charity. But I don't agree with this because like you said, Mm. I think putting your name on it does inspire people to, to follow. Like it's the whole, there's science about this. Like if you know others are doing something, you're more likely to do it. So, you know, if, that's if, true. If that is true. Yeah, currently in the hotel you're... are recycling their right. towels, then you are more likely to recycle your towel.
0: By the way, you should never do that. You should never do that. They're doing it to save money, okay? And they're leveraging your social welfare aspects. But you know, the more people that do that, the less work there is for the housekeepers and eventually they're going to they have reduction in the amount of housekeeping staff. And, you know, people don't realize that it's actually, you know, just set up so the hotel can save money on housekeeping staff and not give as many tips because you're actually less likely to give a tip to your house. Do you give a tip to when you stay at a hotel? I know you never leave your house, but theoretically, do you give a tip and how much do you give?
2: Uh, I always give a tip. Yeah, I I always give I always give a little bit more than would be
0: considered normal because I want them to
2: remember me. Yes.
0: And, 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 you know, there's a practical benefit. If you leave something behind, which I was just in Chile for like four nights, imagine going to Chile, a 5,000 mile trip for four nights. Uh, I was just there at a nice, a nice hotel down there. And uh, you know, it's like they pay their staff, you know, $5 a day or whatever. Uh, But I knew I was going to forget something. And I always tip like, even when I'm there, like I used to do it, by the way, never tip the whole time that you stay, never tip the last day. Did you know that you shouldn't like some people, I used to do that. Like, Oh, when I leave, I'm going to leave, you know, $50, you know, $30, whatever it is, $10 a day, but only, but never do that because they have different staff on different days. So you might not, you might miss the man or woman who's cleaning. Uh, the my, day
2: My issue is I don't, when I stay in a hotel, I don't
0: get housekeeping at all until the end. so You don't, you just keep do not disturb on there. That's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's smart. I guess that's smart. I just, I like, I just it. like, you like know, they put them. a chocolate on your pillow and, but they tuck in your sheets so tight. I can't stand that they tuck in my sheets.
2: But to the point really though of the of the uh, anonymity and charity, I used to believe that now I don't because I do see the effects mm-hmm. of when you do something and people are inspired by what you did, there's likely to be more charity
0: uh, later on. And that's, and, I, and that's what I'm talking into with like accolades. So like, you know, to not accept, by the way, the Nobel prize in physics, I believe is the only prize in chemistry. Those are the only prizes that no one's ever rejected. In other words, people have turned down the literature prize. People turned down the peace prize. People have turned down uh, the, the whatever other prize, uh, but they never turned down the physics or chemistry prize. And that is, as I say in my first book, losing the Nobel Prize, you know, a function of the idolatry that we have towards these prizes. And I and I guess I felt like, what am I? Who am I trying to impress? Like either with charity, charity, okay, that makes sense. Maybe with science, like someone will look up to me if I won a Nobel Prize, but they wouldn't. But like, there's so many other metrics. And I guess this year, you know, I've kind of I've won I won another award at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. I was inducted what into was the award? international. It's called the International Aviation Hall of Fame Award. And it's given out to like it's been given out to you know Amelia Earhart and to uh and to Charles Lindbergh and to uh Neil Armstrong and and Brian Keating now. Um and and I was one of several winners that and I really felt Insecure. I, I mean, really group of Nazis. It was given now to. <laughs> no, th- there were some communists. There were a couple of commies in there too. Right. Don't don't. All right. So now, when I won that, I really felt like the imposter syndrome. Ironically, after you and I wrote co-wrote, or you wrote the forward, co-wrote the forward with Barry Barish, winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize to the wonderful book uh, "Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner," James Altucher forward, which um, I did feel totally the impo- imposter is also, syndrome writing that that forward. <laughs> So I was like, "Thank you for giving me this gift of now." In my acceptance speech, by the way, they didn't. If you're giving an award, at least tell the person you're going to have to give an acceptance speech. I didn't know I'd have to give an accept. So until I saw the other guy ahead of me, who had like started the school called Top Gun that the movies are based on, Dan Peterson, who wrote a book about that called Top Gun. Um, so he won it like a minute before me. Then he gets up there, and gives this like tear jerking speech, and I'm like, "What the hell? I didn't even know how to give a speech." Um, so I get up there and I said, "I." For the first time in my life, I'm wondering if I'm even good enough to have the imposter syndrome. Uh, I've been in this crowd of, of, of like the guy who runs all army helicopters around the world, this major general, and then like an astrophysics professor. But my wife, Sarah, helped me out a lot. She said, Look, Brian, you've taught a tremendous number of people. You've done, you've flown like kids with cancer and burn victims around the world in a tiny little Cessna, you know, you've done a lot for aviation, but mostly for space and learning about space and teaching space at the level and the scale that I teach, I shouldn't be embarrassed. And, and so with her help, she helped me see that. But again, and, and again, these things now I'm I'm enjoying because my kids are finally old enough to come to these events and, you know, and I don't have to go alone. And, and that used to be kind of a drag, uh, even though it was nice to give a speech or, or get an award. But, but now I just, I do feel like, you know, like my mortality, you know, I'm 51. And I'm thinking about life, you know, in just a different frame of mind where, where it's not, uh, here's another example, my, my my rabbi, you know, who I loved and was married me and and did the eulogy for my father at his funeral 16 years ago, he moved to Israel. And uh, we have a new rabbi in the temple that I go to. And I felt like a little bit uh, that I had been abandoned by this, you know, he's like a father figure to me after my father died. And and now he's in Israel and he always wanted to do that. And, and then there's a new rabbi who's wonderful. And he and his wife, you know, are now the rabbi and, and Rebitson, it's called the woman, uh, the wife of the rabbi, of my for my children. And I was like, you know, how selfish am I? Because you know, I was like mourning the fact that I don't have this rabbi in my life on a daily basis anymore. But But how great I should feel for my kid. Like I'm getting to the point where I'm trying to get more comfort, more satisfaction from helping other people rather than like trying to climb some ladder of success. But I'm worried, James, because there is sort of that Elan Vital, as they call it, you know, that life energy, that vitality that you have when you're questing after something, bestseller, you, know, um, you know, to, to win an uh, Oscar, a Nobel Prize. Like, if I don't have that anymore, I think I'm healthier. I think it's better, you know, for society where the person doesn't care so much about him or herself, but more about their family, their community, their society. Um, but I think on a personal level, perhaps that's gonna diminish my vitality or my uh, sure. you know, kind of my uh, emotional attachment to my own victories. But what do you and, think?
2: Yeah, I think this is a really fundamental question that is a life question. Like at what point in life do you let um, kind of elder statesmanship take over after youthful ambition and passion. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're young, and it depends on the profession, but like in physics, math, science, and many other professions, the peak age, for most professions actually, and for sports, the peak age is in the 20s or 30s. Uh, for physics, certainly, uh, it's probably the peak age where people do their their peak research is in their 20s and 30s. doesn't mean- mm-hmm that's true for you. It's just an average. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can argue Einstein was in his 20s when he wrote his his most useful papers. Um, not his most cited paper, by the way, which is the one where he says God doesn't roll dice. That was much later in his life, which that's is right. his actually most cited paper. But his theory of relativity was when he was in his 20s. But at some point, it needs to shift over. Your 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 The metric by which you're defining your success, I feel, needs to shift over to how much am I influencing and helping the next generation? The people who will, who will inherit my passion for a subject and go even further with it, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's so many conflicts that have happened through history between mentors and mentees. When the mentee starts to rise above the mentor, but the, the goal of the mentor is to make the mentee, the student better
0: than the teacher. Right, which is which is again. By the way, coming back to where we started with graduate students, that's my goal. My goal is that my graduate students should exceed me, and in every way, you know. But financially is like the least important part. I know it's important for them, and and it was important for me. But nobody goes into you know being a grad student to make money. So what are you doing it for? You're doing it so you could exceed your the person you're apprenticing with. You know, again, graduate school is like an apprenticeship in a lot of ways. But I, I do agree with you. But does that diminish your own ability to? then continue succeeding.
2: Well, 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 your success will be different. You, it does diminish the ability to come up with the next theory of relativity, to come up with the next concept. That's going to win the Nobel prize that, that does diminish and your ambitions kind of will naturally change. And for those who don't like they, they become less happy because when you're in your fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties, your ability to you know, come up with new concrete research that changes the world does get less. So you have to, and then your ability to write it up and then your ability to fight for credit and your ability to publicize it, all of these things get less, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily true that your need for these things gets less that you have to sort of train yourself to say, look, now I've done this now. How can I do this to go to this next stage in my life? And whether, I'm not saying 50 is the dividing line, but lots of things in the brain start to change around the age of 50. For instance, your ability to do complex mathematical reasoning in your brain diminishes, Mm -hmm. Uh, but many other things change. But what does increase is your ability to recognize patterns. You know, when you see a student who's going through something you've seen other students go through or you've been through, your ability to help them actually increases. So this is why what's the average peak age for a historian is 79 years old so historians yeah it's mm-hmm. very different from mathematicians a good historian depends on learning from the past and then using that mm-hmm. to interpret you know whatever it is they're analyzing and make then predictions or assumptions about the future what's the peak age for a mentor you, you know you see many of these people in silicon valley they've, they're ceos for a while and then they become on boards and, and our investors and our mentors to the next generation of CEOs. And you don't see them becoming a CEO again, you, and, and striving to become a CEO and making the next billion, you see them taking more of this mentorship role. And I think that's probably what you're feeling a little bit like. I know I, in the past few years have felt this extremely like, let's say from, from the age of 25 to 45, I was in, or 50 even. I was insanely obsessed with, you know, writing every single day, getting more followers, writing things that were meaningful to people. I wanted to be the best writer in the world. I wanted to be the best entrepreneur. I wanted to ever give great talks, everybody to know who I am, uh, have a podcast with tens of millions of, of downloads a day. And in the past few years, I think for a lot of reasons that's become less for me. And yeah, I don't always know why, but I think. I think it's because I'm, I'm much more happy now teaching and helping people. And mm-hmm. that really has become a strong part of, of my life. Like right now, Jay and I are preparing a course, uh, which I'm going to put on Udemy about writing and I've never wanted to do something like this before, but now I just love this idea of, because I've helped so many people with their own writing, that mm-hmm. the idea of taking a course about it, there's nothing else I'm more interested in than, than that because I could see that will have a, an impact on people. I don't need to be famous from it. I have no desire to write, you know, the next best-selling book about writing. I just simply want to teach about it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And and I think, you know, it's part of becoming like a different uh, a different mindset which requires that you accept the changes in your own capabilities, <clears throat> um, which, which has to do with, you know, like when you're young and you are a grad student, you are a postdoc, you are a professor, and you're coming up you have a flexible mind you're you're reading all the papers you're doing all the tests and stuff like that and then later in life you can start to become more consumed with with teaching and and you see much of the good teachers as you said historians are teachers in a way right so for them you know to to mature and to accept that they're aging and my brain isn't as facile as it was as a as a you know 26 year old or whatever and, uh, and so forth is, you know, when I was in my Einstein prime, but now I'm a better teacher. I have more tools in my toolkit of wisdom, but still that's separate. You know, that's kind of the, as Arthur Brooks talks about, like the second brain or whatever, I forget what he calls it specifically, but, but, you know, you mature from this fluid brain to this more kind of uh, toolkit, you know, like, yeah. Oh, I remember it, that exact problem or that chess problem, you so know, Arthur from- Brooks
2: calls that you're moving from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. That's right. That's exactly and, right. See, and, I forgot and, that.
0: We, I Forgot what he called it. That's what my fluid intelligence is. Oh, that's what he
2: mentions also. And this is also known in neuroscience is that your your memory declines. It doesn't mean you're getting dementia, it's just
0: memory just naturally declines. You don't need it as much. Exactly. I I agree. Uh, and so you know, I think in that sense, I've I've kind of taken a lot more, you know, maybe comfort from or 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 you know, put a lot more of my own self-worth in teaching. Uh, but because, you know, the students are on strike, <laughs> uh, and, and, and we can't, you know, get together in person without, you know, violating scab laws or whatever they call it. Um, so, uh, so it kind of got away from that. But on the other hand, I've started this podcast, the you know, into the impossible podcast. Thanks in large about part what to you. Done,
2: yeah. Think about what you've done the past few years. You've started a podcast that's been very successful and influential. You, you've written these great books, like this latest one on Galileo, was a, a a passion of yours. Like you you yeah. discovered so much about this saint of physics that you you learned so much more by reading his works in the original that it became such a pleasure for you to to write this book and you even give talks about it. Like these are all now ways you're taking this passion for physics and transforming them into what Brian the elder is doing as opposed to Brian the younger.
1: Brian the Younger
2: was trying to figure out how the universe began. Brian the Older is now just taking pleasure in all these nuances of demonstrating new fascinating things about physics and explaining them. You've explained to me
0: 10 different theories
2: of how the universe began. Like, you could have been working on research instead of that. Instead, you shared all this knowledge with with my listeners.
0: Right. I, I feel like, you know, I get to teach at scale with my YouTube channel and my podcast and, and my books. And, you know, whereas a scientific paper, my most highly sci- cited paper has maybe 1,500 citations and that's the bicep 2 wow. you know result paper which, which is great um, but there's people with 10 times higher you know citations on, on certain papers uh, but but and that's kind of the um, the gamification of academia is like how many citations and not only that how many set papers have a certain number of citations it's called your h index which is kind of a metric like you could have one paper let's say you write two papers and one has zero citations one has a thousand citations so your average citation is 500 but it's really you just had one paper or you had a hundred papers, one has a thousand citations and uh, and the rest have, uh, have zero. So there's something called the H index, which is the number of papers that have at least H citations. So if you've written 10 papers and they all have 10 citations, your H index would be 10. But if you've only written nine papers and they each have uh, 10 citations, then you'd be nine. Okay, so you keep, so the higher, it gets exponentially higher to increase that number, to go from like 48, which is my H index now, Uh, to 49 means I have to have another, you know, I have to have 49 total papers that have 49 total citations rather than just one that has 1500, like I said. So it's kind of a quantity times quality metric. And none of these things are perfect. And then you could do all sorts of gamification, you know, modifications where you can, you know, do it by age and cohort and field because some fields have just way more citations. And then like physics has theory and experiment and computation, you know, break down all those different levels. So, um, and in my and, and fun fact, that H index is named after my colleague here at UC San Diego named Jorge Hirsch. H stands for Hirsch, and that's his most cited paper is his paper about this way to quantify citations of papers. <laughs> but you know, so I started to think like my YouTube channel, like some of my videos will have a hundred thousand views. And that's, you know, literally 60 times higher than my highest cited paper. Um, so like, where should I over-index? Where should I put more of my, you know, and and of course, a lot of them are not physicists that are watching it. And that's great. I try to, you know, as you know, I, I feel scientists have a moral obligation if we're spending taxpayer money, as we all are, to explain to the taxpaying public what we do. I mean, can you imagine if you were working like for um, uh, HBO again, and your, your boss comes in and says, you know, what are you working on, James? And you say... I'm doing something very, very, very specialized and something that you're not capable of understanding. And even though you pay me, I'm not going to break down in terms that you can understand. You know, you'd be fired, you know, uh, in, a, in a heartbeat. But we as scientists do that. First of all, we don't do any like kind of training in media. We don't do any kind of um, way to distill uh, and spread our in our ideas. We keep it literally locked in this ivory tower, which I think is immoral because again, the, your audience and my audience, they were paying my salary and so, you know, how can I not give back for free, but, you know, putting on YouTube, putting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera, how can I not exchange, you know, for them some tangible reward that if they're interested, some people might not be interested, but if they are, I think it's, you know, borderline unconscionable that we do that as as scientists. And so I've been on a personal mission to do that. There are other people you've you've had on, like Andrew Huberman is kind of similar. Although that guy won't return my phone calls, James. That That guy... He was a professor here in San Diego about eight to 10 years ago. And one of the other you know, kind of year 2022 highlights is that um, is related to him in a way in that his close friend and colleague here at UC San Diego is named Gentry Patrick. And I've had him on my podcast. Um, Gentry happens to be African-American and I've known him for longer than I've known my wife. And this summer, um, he and my wife's cousin got married. <laughs> And wow. uh, and they asked me to perform the ceremony. And it was done on June 15th, which is known as Loving Day, because that was the day Loving versus Virginia, which ratified interracial marriage, was, uh, was passed by the Supreme Court, legalizing interracial marriage in the U.S. in 1967. So I was very honored and touched that they asked me to perform. I'd never performed a ceremony. And I had to become a minister. So this year I became, you know, a Jewish minister. Um, uh, and it was a very, you know... It was very arduous, uh, James, to do this because you you actually need you need to have an email address and and if you don't have an email address, you cannot become a minister in the Universal Life Church. Um, so it was arduous, but I became a minister. I have my certificate and uh, and I performed this wedding, and it was a huge highlight for me because you know I I put a lot of thought into it. I figured you know I usually don't do things that I'm only going to do once like. I never like rewire the electricity in my house. Like, you know, it's just it's it's, it's stupid. You should just get a professional to do it, uh, uh, like you. You know, that's that's uh, that that would be my goal. Uh, but you know, so like, I usually. But this is so special. I couldn't not do it. So I, I put a lot of effort into it, um, and uh, it was it was a very challenging thing because actually, a sad thing. The the worst thing that happened to me this year is one of my very close friends passed away very young. Um, uh, his name is Eden Raffaelli. And he passed right away, um, just literally, he worked at Google X up in the Bay Area and he just literally collapsed one day at work and uh, was taken to the hospital and he, he died a few days later. And he was basically taken off of life support as I'm performing this wedding and I'm talking with his parents. It was, it was a very challenging day, um, but I, you know, and I keep a journal because Ryan Holiday told me I should keep a journal. And I should—I never got back to the the connection with Ryan. So when I won this Horace Mann Medal, I told Ryan, I, I told him I, I didn't feel like I was really changed. You know, like I said, it, it was it was important, but it wasn't like transfer. It wasn't like if I hadn't won it, I would have been crushed, like the way I was about the Nobel Prize, say, at one point. And he was like, "That's good, you know, you're, you're like getting there, young Padawan, or whatever." Um, and you know, so it's nice. He's he's kind of my stoic rabbi. But at the same time, I feel like I wouldn't—I would have been. You know, kind of not I, knowing. Let's say they said uh, at the last minute, you can't perform the wedding or whatever. You know, who knows? Uh, then you know it would have hurt. It would have you know because it's it's almost like those things mean more than than winning an academic award or even a Nobel Prize, right? To do those kinds of things, the spiritual things, the that nourish the side of your of your life that only mm-hmm. you can do. Like a lot of people have won the Nobel Prize, but only one person has ever performed this particular wedding.
2: I mean, and and Ryan has a lot, of, a lot of great examples from Stoicism, but let's look at, I'll look at one example from Buddhism and one example from Judaism. And so in Buddhism, Buddha, of course, started as a prince, right? The most, yeah he wanted to win wars. He wanted to be a king, all this kind of stuff. Then he was ambitious for what he thought was different definitions of enlightenment. He would try every possible way, like whether to be an ascetic or, you know, engage in meditation or whatever it was he would try all these different ways to get some magical state he called enlightenment and then finally whatever state he realized he really became like an elder and and taught a bunch of students monks and and not only that was almost a diplomat like he he his his grove was in the middle of three warring kingdoms that were always mm. at war with each other one of those kingdoms was the one he would have been king of. So it was Mm. particularly difficult for him to be a diplomat and to keep all of his monks who were peace-loving, to keep them safe. Mm. There's a lot about Buddha that people don't realize he was constantly negotiating to just save the lives of his monks. And and he played extreme elder statesman role. Now, taking Judaism. Moses, at first, was the rising, young, rabble-rouser. He wanted to bring his people, you know, freedom and out of slavery. He's like splitting the Red Sea. He couldn't mm. split the Red Sea in his 70s. He <laughs> could only do it in his 20s. Otherwise, forget it. And then after that, his whole goal, he didn't even need to get to Israel. His whole goal was to just get his people to exceed his own ambition. His ambition initially was to get to Israel. He never himself got to Israel, but it's he the brought promised it land. There. So, right. you know, it, it, this is a r- almost... You know, it's it's throughout history you see the the examples of the people we remember and 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 are, you know, not worship but
1: you
2: know <laughs> we think the most highly of are these people who make this transformation from ambition to to statesmanship.
0: Yeah, and the the the, the you know, and I, I appreciate being compared already to Jesus, to Buddha, to um, I, I didn't you compare know. to Jesus. Jesus never made
2: to his fifties. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. We've uh, exceeded the. Uh, if we wanted to go into stoicism, I would have compared to Seneca and and Marcus Aurelius. Yes. Okay. Good. That'll be when uh, we write our next, uh, you know, next book together. But I um, ah, no, I I I feel like that is a truism. But to 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 get to that point, and also I see this with with fatherhood as well. And and I see your, you know, you and and your daughter, you know going back and forth on Twitter. And that's cute. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the day if I ever allow my kids to be on social media, uh, that they'll be able to do such things.
2: I mean, just add, It's such a pleasure for me. My daughter's tweets are a bit spicy. Like, yeah. And we, tree. Her, I laugh when I read her tweets and I, I don't respond to them often. Cause I don't want to like, you know, get in the way of her own thing. Right. Um, but what I do is funny. And then one of her friends yesterday tweeted, I can't believe you let your father follow your tweets, given what you tweet. And she <laughs> tweeted back, he's chill. And
0: that was my highest moment you're of the shepping, That's In Yiddish, that's called shepping naches. Shepping naches, when you're just are like filled with a kind of paternal, maternal pride over something that your kids did. Not to be confused with schlepping nachos, which my kids would <laughs> never do for me. I love nachos. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, thinking, again, it's like taking pride in your kids' accomplishments, you know, is, is as a certain level more satisfying than, than your own. And so it's like, um, I feel like at some point we always have this inner voice, right? That's, uh, but you're, and you're, maybe you're trying to live to impress your inner voice or live to impress yourself. I've heard it said, but, um, but there's really nobody like, I mean, yes, God, you believe in God. You can, you can think about, you know, living in accordance with his rules or, or what have you, but in terms of like, am I, am I an impressive person? You know, am I doing something impressive? Um, I think, yeah, the highest form of that, which relates to my ultimate theory of the meaning of life, you know, I mean, Elon wants to go to Mars and he wants to do this and he wants to live forever. And he wants to, uh, and that's great. You know, I'm, I'm supportive of what he's doing and, a lot of his endeavors. Um, but we already can live forever. We just can't bring our physical bodies with us. And that is through the values and the, and the lessons that we teach to our children where the children could be biological but they don't have to be they could be ideological and i think looking at that in kind of an ethical perspective that you can extend maybe not forever who knows i mean there, there's some saying i heard recently it's depressing it's like a man dies twice you know once when he breathes his last breath and once when his name is spoken for the last time <laughs> and you know we're talking about moses and buddha and jesus and everything now uh, they're still being talked about.
2: Be as, I think that could be viewed as a positive quote though. Like, uh-huh. uh, in the sense that I hope for the day, like I, sometimes I talk to 80 year olds who are very successful and I say, when does the, the ambition and constant drive, which also mm. means constant disappointment, when does it end for you? And sometimes yes. they say it never has. And that depresses me because yeah. I want to know that I can transform to not being as ambitious. like, oh, so-and-so went on this podcast, but I didn't, you know, so right. I, I get- Andrew Huberman, <laughs> and,
0: paging Andrew Huberman. No, but you had and, this with Stephen Pressfield. You had Stephen Pressfield on earlier this year, or maybe it was a repeat. And he was just like, yeah, I didn't. And I think this is true. Please correct me if I'm wrong, James. But he was like, yeah, every, every book you write is a kid you didn't have or vice versa or something like that. Um, or every kid you have is a book you didn't write. That's what he said. And I, I found that so depressing because he doesn't have any kids, right?
2: No, no, no. And we, we in fact, that, that was the podcast we did in, um, 2021 where, uh, cause the very first podcast I had with him in 2016, he said to me, I it was in his house in Malibu actually. And he said to me that he's given up a lot in his life to be a writer. And I always, but I was leaving, I was walking out the door. The podcast was over. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, and I always, always wonder what did he mean by that? So I started off as one in 2021 asking him, That's what did right. mean? and he actually said, you know, I surprised myself by saying that to you, and I had to think what it meant that I said it to you. Like I've thought about it a lot since then. And look, he really gave up a lot to to be a writer. And
0: and I feel and like, is that worth lot. it? You know, is that worth it? Yes. I mean, let's say that's all you have is that you're remembered for a long time for the books. I mean, Jesus didn't have any kids either, right? And he's still remembered, and he still had an influence. So I'm not I'm not equating those things together. And by the way, you know, people always say, well, look, why why is because I'm always talking about children, but I don't mean to say that if you don't have children, you're like a loser or, or you're a failure or you're immoral in any way. Um, but I will say that there are options. You know, you could be a big brother, big sister. You could be an adoptive parent. You could be a foster parent. I mean, there's so many children. We talk about abortion and and what should we be able to do and not be able to do. You know, there's so many kids and I was adopted, you know, and and so I, I know this. Why didn't you that, Brian? yeah my my stepfather adopted me and so my 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 name is not uh, Keating when I was a, a child I was adopted you know by my stepfather and my mother but we changed my name and so he did adopt me as his own kid and I wasn't in touch with my father my biological father for the next 15 years of my life uh, but I yeah, I guess what what I'm saying is when I have um, well, how when come, I th- how
2: come uh, you weren't in touch with your biological father for the next fifteen years?
0: So he, you know, kind of after the divorce with my parent with my mom, he viewed us, my older brother and I, of the same mother and father, as kind of you know being completely under the sway of my mother and and her uh, uh, her um, fiance who became my father uh, adopted father, and uh, you know he he decided he didn't you know, have a place in our life and that we'd be better off without him and that he'd be better off without us. And so he gave us up for adoption instead of uh, paying my mother and stepfather, you know, alimony and, and whatnot. He gave us up for adoption. And so I wasn't, uh, so he he didn't have the right to keep our names as as his name. And How did so, you in
2: contact with them?
0: So uh, in graduate school, when I was at Brown, I had a neighbor in the dorms who had the exact same lifestyle, life history as me. His father had abandoned him. Um, he was raised by his mother and his stepfather. And he went to um, you know he was a, a brilliant kid. Uh, he he came from Turkey. His fa- I think his mother was Turkish and his father was an American GI. And they they met and after the Korean War or something. Anyway, they um, so he told me that he had had this reconciliation with his with his father, his biological father. And it transformed his life and it transformed um, for the better, even though he had the same kind of hostility towards his father and how he treated his mother, et cetera. And he told me, you know, like baggage has a handle for a reason. So you can put it down. And by carrying this antipathy towards my father, I realized it was really eating me up inside. And, and worse than that, in some ways was my, you know, his mother also and his sister had disconnected from me and never had contact with me and my older brother you know, from the time I was seven, my brother was 10. And so I never saw my biological grandmother again because she ended up dying. And so and the exact moment I met this friend of mine at Brown, I somehow got in touch with not, uh, so my grandmothers, both my biological grandmothers lived in the, you know, what I call the, the, the um, you know, the Jewish mother triangle in Southern Florida, you know. Uh, so it goes from like, you know, New York to Florida, to, you know, to Boca to Miami, to Boca, and then it goes back up. Uh, and they communicated not to each other because they hated each other, but through mutual friends that I call the internet, all these you know Jewish bubbies and nanas and whatever. And so word got around that I was interested in talking to my, my father. And it also got around that my father's mother was dying of cancer and she ended up dying before I ever saw her again. I never talked to her again. Um, and so, but before she died, she put my biological father in touch with me and he and I connected when I was a grad student. And I researched all of his all of his work and math and physics, and we had this connection immediately. And we resumed a relationship after many, many, fifteen years of not seeing each other, not talking to each other, no contact whatsoever. And and but, still getting along now. Well, he passed away in two thousand and six. So ah. yeah, we we did reunite, and that was wonderful. And and it meant that he could be in the life of my my nephews and my brother's life and my sister in law. He never met my wife or my kids, unfortunately. But, um, but I forgot why we brought this up, but, but the, the, you know, kind of living, living, you know, with your kids or through adoption or whatever um, is it is fulfilling. And there is this tendency. I don't know. How do you react to this with this notion of, you know, what antinatalism is? No, there's this push that, that people shouldn't really have children and that, uh, you know, mankind is sort of a virus on the surface of the earth. It's causing the destruction of planetary resources. it's causing the depletion of the you know of uh, of our habitability zones of animal life, of plant life, global warming, um nuclear war threats, all sorts of things, and that we're effectively like a cancer a toxin on on the earth. and that the uh, the moral choice, according to many philosophers and thinkers, quote unquote, now is that you shouldn't have children. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's curious to me if they think, you know, we should commit suicide. And, and there is actually a move towards, you know, assisted suicide and, and encouragement of suicide um, in many other countries, uh, as you may know. So there's this thing, antinatalism means it's a, the philosophy of not having ch- reproduction. And, um, and that, that is considered by many intellectuals to be a net good. Uh, for the planet and for, you know, for I, I mean, it's so alien to my philosophy that I can't even speak about it because, you know, it's cliche, children are our future, whatever. But, um, but the you think that the very cure to, to like global warming will be enhanced with more people on earth or, 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 you know, or reduced? I mean, it's so obvious that technology depends on the flourishment of the existing human yeah, civilization and also,
2: ever since they I had this conversation with Matt really ever since like the early 1800s every 10 years people were saying overpopulation is going to kill right. us in the next 10 years and it never happened and it and life has only quality of life around the world on average has only gotten higher in every decade and That's so right. it's just, it's just ridiculous right it's you, you told me question. that that uh... so I can understand not having children I did not want to have children mm-hmm. most things in my life that I have now, I did not want to have. So Mm. it doesn't even matter what you want or don't want. It's going to happen anyway.
0: Yeah. So like, how can you know, though, there are people that I've interviewed many, many people on the podcast who chose specifically not to have children, whether it's for lifestyle reasons or look at, look at Pressfield, right? I mean, he's basically acknowledged, maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe it was that he didn't have children. I, I guess I feel like, um, like I've, I've actually, you know, this is where I'm I'm kind of nervous to ask your advice in a certain sense, because I feel like that ambition, like I never wrote a book and then I wrote a book and then it was with a major publisher with Norton. And then I did, um, a self-published book that, you, you know, that you wrote the forward to I think like a Nobel prize winner. And that was great. And it's, it made even more money than the first one. You know what? I didn't get into it for the money. I mean, I probably got paid less than my graduate students. You know, uh, three dollars an hour from the Norton Advance, um, and then I did an audio book because I thought, oh, that's really cool. It'll be great to have my voice connect. I did it with with Carlo Rovelli and and Frank Wilczek and 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 um, you know these Nobel Prize winners and, and brilliant thinkers, and that was kind of a one. But now I'm like, I don't know if I have that ambition any. Like I've ticked those boxes, and I'm like, where's the next box? And 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 I, I realized that's in total you know, contrast and, and completely antithetical to what I'm saying before, which is like, you should live to impress yourself. You shouldn't care about these awards and accolades and metric, but like, I don't, I don't like those itches have been scratched. And so to speak, like I, I don't feel the need, maybe that's a good thing. Like I, I think people write books and there there's way too many books. Right. I think there's just people write a book cause you know, whether it's a cookbook because someone told them they're a good cook, or or a memoir because someone said, "Oh, you had a funny story." Well, there's way too many books, and maybe they could say that about my books. I don't know. Um, I like to think that they help, but it's partially narcissism, right? We we write books. We like attention. We like book sales. We we have publicity. We we do these things. I mean, you you did it more in the past. You do it less now. But like, is that a warning sign? Like, how do you know when you're <laughs> when you're over the hill, or or when you when how do you know when you're lack of ambition? as a 50-something could be detrimental to some long-term flourishment?
2: I think it's a great question because I don't think there's a real answer because, first off, a lot of times ambition decreases because of depression. A lot of times Mm -hmm. ambition decreases because of less testosterone, Uh, so particularly for men over the age of a certain age. Uh, But, you know, and, and should you be doing things like, like I wonder for myself, should I be focusing so much, for instance, on this podcast as opposed to like starting another business or, uh, you know, writing a, a best-selling book or or whatever or or like for instance, I t- I t- take a lot of my spare time now and I study chess because I'm trying to mm-hmm. uh, get better at something that I loved so much as a child. And uh, am I wasting my time? Am I ruining my talents? But one thing you can remember though is that and, and Basically, three years after everyone's death, nobody remembers you, and that's true for just about everybody like when that's was the last, last breath?
0: You- yeah, it's the last time you take a breath and the last time that so your name is mentioned right? I, I don't like, know about three years I mean, you really think it's three years I mean, if we go to my synagogue not- and my synagogue temple has a board with people's names that died in the in the in the you know them when you see
2: that board so it's like yeah. fifty people other you see that board that's right, but, but, yeah, but like. It doesn't matter how many books you wrote, like who won the Nobel prize in 1953? Like we know uh, in 1952, I think it was Curtis Hemingway, but in mm-hmm. 1953, oh, right. yeah. I, I have no idea who won the Nobel prize in literature. Probably never read any of their books. Probably this year, nobody has read that person's books. Right. Uh, <laughs> and let's just see, 1953 Nobel prize in literature. But, you know, again, most, uh, who, you know, President Gerald Ford, died, you know, in the past decade or so, Who's was president of the United States between yeah. Nixon and Carter, like a right. pivotal president that that took us from Vietnam to, to hopefully a more normal period. It took us from the Nixon, you know, yeah. fraud and potential impeachment to, uh, to you know, the, the nice Jimmy Carter and nobody talks about him ever. Nobody says, yeah. well, this guy is up there on the list of greatest, pre- he's president of the world. And. <laughs> Nobody thinks about him ever. And that was a president. Yep.
1: We hope you enjoyed this special collab episode with Brian Keating and James Altucher. Please leave us some holiday cheer and subscribe rate and review wherever you listen. Get more of James on his ever-popular James Altucher Show podcast. For a chance to win some actual four-billion-year-old stardust, subscribe to Brian's mailing list at briankeating.com. Happy Holidays from Into the Impossible. Stay curious.